Some thought it was unusual when the pastor backed up a borrowed pickup truck and drove across the lawn of the church to his study door. He refused comment or assistance, and he began to empty his office under the truck bed. His method was impassive and systematic. First the desk drawers, then the files, and at last his library of books, which he tossed carelessly in a heap, many of them flopping askew like slain birds. When his task was done, the pastor left the church and drove some miles to the city dump where he committed everything to the waiting garbage. It was his way of putting behind the overwhelming sense of failure and loss that he had experienced in the ministry. This this gifted young pastor was determined never to return to the ministry And he never did. He never did. Uh, Those words open uh, a book written by one of my teachers at school, a book about ministry success and failure. And it's a sad story about someone who just didn't think it was worth it anymore. It's just not worth it anymore. And I just wonder this morning, um, how many of us could take our life story and kind of apply it to that scenario right there? I wonder how many of us are wondering, you know, is it worth it? Is this, is this worth it? I mean, what, I mean, what even, what we're even doing now? Is this worth, is church worth it? I mean, we gather here weekly when, when uh, people come to Christ we tell them, look, growing as a Christian means belonging to a community of believers. And, and, you know, a lot goes on here to make this event happen here. You know that uh, from our, our, our servants and children's and student ministry to, uh, you know, the bulletin preparation and slide preparation and fixing the coffee and communion prep. I mean, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I mean, the question needs to be asked, huh? Is it worth it? Some take that question and they don't apply it just to their church situation. They apply it to their marriage. Is this marriage worth it? Is it worth it? Are my children worth it? Some say, well, what am I going to do? Well, some do what that pastor did. They just kind of take it all, put it on a bed of a pickup truck, go to the dump and unload it. That's what some do. Is my job worth it? And sometimes it's hard to see. And sometimes we are tempted to just take it all to the dump. You know, we are. And, and if you're here today wondering, is this worth it? I've got a word for you. I've got a word for you. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the last book of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We ask the question, is it worth it? And Revelation chapter 20 screams at the top of his lungs, yes, it's worth it. If you are faithful to Jesus, if you love Jesus, 
If you love him more than your life, if you will make him your heart's desire, it, it will be worth it. It will. Loving Jesus most, putting, putting him in front, if you will put him in front of, of your job, if you will put him in front of your marriage, if you will put him in front of your children, if you will put him in front of your stuff, and yes, if you will put Jesus in front of ministry. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's why that illustration connects with me because, because ministers need to put Jesus in front of ministry because there are, listen, I know, you can't out con a con, I know preachers who like preaching about Jesus more than they love Jesus. And if you put anything else in front of Jesus, you're going to climb the ladder and you're going to get to the top of the wall and you're going to realize you're leaning against the wrong wall. But if you will put Jesus first and love him most and make him your heart's desire, that's always worth it. Always. And Revelation chapter 20 tells us why. Now before we look at this passage of scripture and we're going to just take it in chunks we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and then uh, verses 4 through 6 and then 7 through 10 and 11 through uh, 15 and that's kind of how we're going to proceed but before we do that let me just set the stage here let me put this chapter in the context of the entire bible when you think about the bible Okay, there's two parts, Old Testament, New Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, 66 books. All right, it's a library of 66 books, but, but it's more than just a library of 66 separate books. It, there, it's, it's one continuous story, one continuous narrative. There's a theme which runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's a single story, and, and it's a four-act play, and act one is creation. Genesis 1 and 2, creation. And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1. Act 2 is the fall. Sin is introduced. Satan, temptation, separation from God. That's Act 2. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Genesis 3, fall. And then Genesis 4, all the way over to Revelation chapter 20. That's a long act. Yeah, we're in it okay we're in it and that's called redemption redemption creation fall redemption and then revelation 21 and 22 huh? uh, restoration restoration the, the the first two chapters of the bible and the last two chapters of the bible describe the world exactly the way god wants it And so Revelation chapter 20, I love it. Revelation chapter 20 is the last chapter of the third major section in the Bible, meaning it's the last we read of sin. Huh? The last we read of sin. It's the last we read of Satan. It's the last we read of rebellion against God. It's the last we read of death. Anybody go to a funeral this week? You went to one, one too many. Tired of funerals. Tired of death. In Revelation 20, it's the last we read of death and, and hell and Satan. And someone once said that, that good stories wrap up the plot lines. And when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, 
all of the plot lines in, in history, all of the plot lines, all the plot lines of the human race, all the plot lines of your life are wrapped up and resolved in Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see how this looks in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It's, John says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now let's just stop there. In our journey through the book of Revelation, I mean, this, this book is, is just drenched with symbols. And here is no different. You know, key, great chain, abyss, dragon, thousand years, all right? I mean, it is just, I mean, it's just, uh, uh, you know, it's just a, a, an exploding fire hydrant of symbols. And after a while, you just go, John, why don't you just talk straight, man? Just why did you just tell it plain? Well, there's a method even in the delivery, the way this is being written. And there's an urgency here. John wants us to get the message here. It's important. It's a pay attention kind of importance. I mean, and, and it takes work to try to figure out what these symbols are. Um, I'm convinced that those who first heard about these symbols, they would have known exactly what it they would have connected with them. Um, and so it, it just takes a little bit of work. You know, how did John readers first hear these words? And, and then now we've got we've to kind of do the CSI work to figure that out. And how can we apply the lessons for them, for us today in our world? Uh, uh, to put it in perspective, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine tomorrow morning uh, reading an article out of the Chicago Tribune that sounds something like this, okay? The glory of the great bull has departed from the earth. The bull dominates no more. And the right horn, whose number was 23, let the reader understand, has departed. And the left horn has also departed. And the third horn, which was pierced in many places and dressed like a woman... The, the third horn also departed, and the great bull has fallen. And the deep magic, gold, and rushing waters of 10,000 lakes have gathered to devour its flesh. Okay. Now you read that tomorrow morning in the Chicago Tribune. What are we talking about? Yeah, basketball, Chicago Bulls, Dennis Rodman, blah, blah, blah. We got that. Okay? We got that. What's the 10,000 Lakes thing? Are we talking about Minnesota? No, we're talking about the Lakers. The Lakers came from Minnesota. Got to do a little... You know that? D knows that. Okay? Gotta, so you got to unpack that a little bit. Takes a little work. Takes a little work. All right? But you take that from its context. 2,000 years from now, someone reads that from another culture and another civilization, and it's going to be a little difficult, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. 
You see, the way the message is given, the delivery mechanism says something about the urgency of the message. And John's audience was an audience experiencing persecution. And it's like, you know, when is this going to be over with? And John's communicating these pictures, okay? Persevere, endure, it's going to be worth it. And what, what we see here in these opening verses is that uh, uh, what John is communicating is that, that I understand your situation, Christians, yet Satan has been dramatically defeated. He's been dramatically defeated. Now the question, of course, is when did this defeat occur? When did it occur? If Satan has been defeated, if he's been bound, if he's been hurled in this, uh, when did this occur? And I think there are some other New Testament verses that, that will help explain this. And one is in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. Jesus himself said, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Breaking and entering, 101, by our master. I mean, no, the strong man here is, is Satan. He's talking about Satan here. Satan's a strong man, all right? And, and then in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 19, when Jesus sent out the 72, they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And, and Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Luke 10. And then the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's talking about the spiritual powers and authorities, Satan's kingdom himself, and having disarmed them, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. So beginning with the ministry of Jesus Christ and culminating in the cross, Satan has been bound and disarmed, but to what extent? That's the question. To what extent? To the extent that he is no longer able to deceive the nations the way he used to deceive the nations before the cross. You see, you see the gospel The gospel is not the second coming of Christ. It's not. The gospel is the first coming of Christ. The gospel is is, uh, in in a dark place. There broke out a holy light. The gospel is God coming in flesh to rescue us from Satan's kingdom and transplanting us into his kingdom. That's the gospel. The gospel is the first coming. I, I uh, heard um, about a pastor who was uh, in a, a funeral procession heading off to a cemetery, and before they pulled into the cemetery, the pastor happened to look at the gate there at the cemetery and noticed that there was a sign. It was one of those sec- security company signs. Huh? You wouldn't think that a cemetery would need a security company, you know, but, they, but this one did, and so... Uh, so they, they pull in, and the name of the company is really interesting. The sign said, it's, such a, it's a just great illustration along with this passage of Scripture. The sign said, security by advent. <laughs> security by advent, you see. And that's the gospel. 
that Christ has come and our security is in him and what he has done for us, what we could not do, you see. Because when Jesus came, Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the truth. And the cross, the cross is, is what conquers the deception of Satan. Now, that's what we learned back in Revelation chapter 12, verses uh, 10 and 11, where it says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And when, verse 11 says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. The cross. The ba- Jesus defeated Satan at the cross because he is the truth. When Christ came, he said, I am the truth. See, to defeat the, the, the deception of Satan. And that's what distinguishes Christianity from all, from all other major religions. Truth is not just in a set of moral codes. Christianity says truth is a person. Sarah and I, in our trip to Turkey, we just had a, you know, a great experience with our very warm friends who are Muslim. And I, I would want them to be my neighbors. I would. Because, because with the three couples that we interacted with, I mean, we agree, we agree on moral absolutes. I mean, we do. Uh, and, and in terms of many social issues, why well, find myself in agreement with my Muslim friends? And uh, C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, The Abolition of Man, where he says that, you know, the major religions, they, they all agree on certain moral absolutes. And so, you know, when a Christian preacher gets up and says, you know, be moral, why, you know, so will other religions too. But here's the difference. The difference comes when we say, why be moral? Why? And other faith systems say, be moral in order to find God. Be moral in order to find God. And Christianity is the only faith system that says, you be moral because God has found you. In Jesus. See, the Christian gospel is not that we are saved by moral living. We are, we are saved for it. We're saved by grace, and that grace will inevitably result in a moral life. And unfortunately, a lot of sermons uh, tell believers you know, to say no to sin, and then the preacher says, well, say no to sin because you know, it's against the Bible, it'll hurt your self-esteem, or it's against our Christian principles, or your sins will find you out. Well, all of those things are true. They are. And they are inadequate by themselves, because Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God is what argues with us telling us you're not living as though you're loved you're not living as a child of god you are whole you are to be holy god's word says not because god will abandon you but because he died for you how can you live in the very sin that jesus was ripped to pieces to deliver you from you see now that's the truth of christianity and that's what makes it worth it even when it comes at a price and believe you me the believers in the first and second centuries, they paid 
they paid for the truth because they would not worship Caesar. They wouldn't. I mean, they lived in a culture of temple worship and imperial Roman temple worship and uh, good Roman citizens did their homage like good patriots, but the Christians, they'll pay the taxes, but they're not going to worship Domitian. And they paid for it with their lives. And their response was as Paul's response was in Philippians, to live as Christ and to die as gain. To live as Christ, to die as gain. If I live here on earth, I'm going to live for Christ. You kill me and I go to be with Jesus. I can't lose. And that's what we see in verses 4 through 6. John says, I saw thrones, thrones. And when we see the word thrones in the book of Revelation, the place is in heaven. In heaven. I saw thrones on which were sealed those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life or they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. To live as Christ, to die as gain, to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. If you're a believer, the minute life leaves your body, you're in Christ, you go to be with Christ where he is. And these are the souls who in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. These are the believers from the church of Smyrna about whom Jesus said, you are going to suffer persecution for a a 10-day type of time in a limited period of persecution and you stay faithful and i will i will give you 10 cubed in years you say you stay faithful for a 10-day type light and momentary troubles and i will give you a 10 cubed period of rain it will be worth it and those of you who know loved ones who have died in christ you know right now it's worth it for them Right now, there are those reigning in heaven with Christ. And and you see, I mean, here's what they don't need. Speaking of security systems, they don't need security systems. And they they don't need locks. They don't need police. They don't need firewalls. They don't need antivirus programs. They don't need passwords. They don't need encrypted numbers for your credit card where it's XXXXXXXXXXX4399. Oh, I'm sorry. They don't need that extra three-letter, three-digit security code on the back. I mean, they don't need all of that stuff. They don't need, and then you forget your password, and then you've got to go, okay, what was my mother's maiden name? What was the hospital? I mean, you don't need all of that stuff. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where you shouldn't need that? Well, they don't, because Jesus is king. And it's going to be worth it because they are at home with Jesus, who alone can do what no human government can do. You see, human governments can only restrain evil, but no human government can eradicate evil. 
None whatsoever. None. Can't. No human government. I mean, what do we call World War I? Oh, the war to end all wars. Well, really? Really? And then there was World War II. And then there was the Cold War, you know, around 1990. Okay, I've got the Soviets ticked off. Good. And then what else came out? Now terrorism. See? We say, okay, and we can just get Osama bin Laden's head on a plate, then we won't have to worry anymore. There's a theological word for that. Hooey. Really? Something else will come up. It always has. It always has. And that's why nations come and nations go. Which is why when Sarah and I went to Turkey, we did not see the Roman Empire. We saw ruins of the Roman Empire. That's what we saw. And unless Christ comes first. I mean, this was interesting. I mean, someone used to live where we walked. And one of these days, your backyard's going to be an archaeological trip for someone else. It's going to be an open-air museum for someone else. Oh, wow, this is how the people in Southwest Champaign live. Wow, oh, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's going to happen. We live long enough. Christ doesn't come. Yeah, your house is going to be a museum. Only you're not going to be there to collect any royalties. I mean, it's not going to be mad. See? Nations come and nations go. That's the way it works. Human progress, will human, will, does, has human progress ever stopped people and nations from sinning? Will human progress and achievement ever wipe away all tears from our eyes or heal our broken hearts? No, the Bible says that the final victory will come not through some natural progress of human development. Rather, victory will come through this world system's complete and absolute overthrow. And that overthrow is described in verses 7 through 10. Let's keep reading. Just reading, seeing how this plays out. When the thousand years are over, so this, this long period of time here, long age which commenced at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When that, when that symbolic period is over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. And Gog and Magog, you say, what is that? That, right in your Bible, Ezekiel chapter 39. Remember, John is writing to a, a to Christians in churches, they, they come from a Jewish heritage, and so they would have appreciation for the Hebrew Bible. And in Ezekiel chapter 39, there was a bad dude named Gog. I mean, what parent named their boy Gog? What is up with that? They, they ought to be punished too. I don't know. Gog was an evil king. In Ezekiel 39, he ruled north of Old Testament Israel. And then Magog, (laughs) Magog simply means land of Gog, land of Gog. And so this guy named Gog kind of symbolizes nations that have been deceived by Satan. And then they're going to gather after Satan has been released. The nations are going to be deceived and they're going to go after God's people. That's what we see. In verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So near the end, 
God is going to allow Satan to be unleashed like never before. And Satan will deceive the nations into setting out to exterminate Christianity. Now let's just stop right there for a minute. (laughs) You know, the title of this series is Refresh, right? It's the old, and in Christ we're refreshed and there's new. And you see that all throughout the foyer. God takes old, he clicks refresh, and here's the new. Now here's how it works with Satan. Take a look. There's Satan if you click the refresh button, and it's the same old Satan. Because he never changes, that's why. He never changes, and he's not going to change. He's never going to change. Jesus once said that Satan has been a liar and a deceiver from the beginning, that lying is his native tongue. That's just how he talks. That's his language. Your first language is English. Satan's first language is lying, deception. That's what he's about, and that will never change. And you can lock Satan up for a thousand years. You can seal the lid. You can vacuum pack him away for however long you want, but the moment he gets out, he's going to go right back to doing what he was doing before he was arrested, deceiving. He deceived our spiritual parents in Genesis chapter 3 and in the, in the Garden of Eden. And Satan is deceiving the nations here. And he's deceiving us in our Garden of Eden as well. Satan deceptively says, if you will just spend money on yourself and buy things you can't afford to impress people you don't like, you'll just feel better. You'll just feel better. Because, you know, you can always heal inner spiritual pain with stuff. That's what he says. And that's, that's a lie. And Satan will deceive a man who is toying with an affair with a woman at the office into thinking that this is God's will because God wants me happy. Why else would he let this happen? Why else would he let this happen? And I've had people neck deep in an affair in my office proclaim their situation their adulterous situation to be the will of God that's a deception and Satan still does it he still does it and that's his only power his only don't think of Satan as this you know I mean say strong man Jesus calls him the strong man he's a strong man because he not because he's got the muscles but because he's he's a trickster that's what he is he's a trickster he's he mimics he mimics the holy trinity father son and holy spirit with his own unholy trinity dragon sea beast false prophet or or land beast that's see he's he's just a cheap imitator he mimics the bride with the harlot he mimics jerusalem with babylon He mimics the mark, the tattoo, the seal of God on the lives of God's people with his own mark, you see. He's a cheap imitator. That's what he is. And he's never going to change, ever, ever. And as for his followers, as for his followers, not even 14 lifetimes of Satan-free rule will break their addiction to his influence. I mean, Christ, Christ has been ruling for a thousand years, but the moment Satan is unleashed, his followers just flock to him in order to exterminate God's people. Verse 9 says they you know, surround the camp of God's people, the city that he loves, that his people, the church. 
surround, the camp is surrounded, like the camp of the Israelites, pinned in between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's chariots. We're surrounded, we're surrounded. And God's people, instead of, instead of taking the battle into their own hands, they just hunker down and trust Jesus. And just, I mean, you talk about a last second shot. Look what happens in a flash of lightning. The enemy's gone, gone. And the unholy trinity spends the rest of eternity away from God. See, that's why he's worth it. If Jesus is worth it, Satan's never worth it, never. And then comes the judgment. Yeah, the judgment. That's a good word. It is. You'll see why here. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Verse 11. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Christ is worth it because one day he is going to judge this world and punish evil. And you know, some people wince at this because they assume that all, that all suffering is innocent suffering. But is it? When Bernard Madoff was sentenced for stealing the life savings of so many Americans, I mean, who could rightfully say, oh, let's not be too hard on him now? What? Wait a minute. Wasn't there a sense of relief after the sentencing? <sighs> There's justice. Where did, that, where did that come from? It came from the character of God, who is a judge, and who judges justly, and who doesn't take bribes, and who is impartial. Judgment's a good thing. It's a good, and those who occupy the lake of fire, and notice that's a figure now, lake and fire, okay? Those are figures, those are symbols, which, which you know, and, and the symbol is never worse than what's real. I don't know what's, what, I mean, what's, what's real, real, but I know the symbol sounds pretty nasty, but what's real is even worse. But what you need to understand is that those who occupy that lake, they're there because they're the ones who refuse Jesus, that's who. See, too, too many people get the idea that, you know, that, that hell is a place where people, okay, they finally wake up and smell the coffee and then they're banging on the door and God is just, you know, kind of spurned lover says, you know, no, 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 no. No, what we see here is that hell is filled with people who have refused Jesus and they continue to refuse Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 15, it says they are the ones who love and practice falsehood. Now, if Jesus is the truth, and these people love and practice falsehood, how are they ever going to be happy in heaven? See, life after death is simply more and more of what you really wanted most in this life. And some want to spend their lives away from God. They're trying to get as far away from God as they possibly can. And God, in the afterlife, in his infinite justice and fairness, simply gives them what they wanted forever in the next life. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. So what do you want most? What do you want most? Hell is filled with people who finally get what they wanted and then they realize that it's not worth it. 
see, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And our entrance into eternity is, is not based on the righteous deeds we've done. No, no, no. That's not, what's, that's not why our names are in the book of life. It's because Jesus in his grace, he has credited to my account his righteousness. And so, and so that's why in Revelation, after the judgment scenes, that's why the, the only response to judgment is worship. Worship our great and awesome God who is worth it. So now what? <laughs> now what? Peter asks that question in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. You see that? What kind of people ought you to be? Now what? And that comes in the context of our discussion here about the coming of Christ. What kind of people ought you to be? Peter says, you ought, you know, you ought to live holy and godly lives. See, not, not in order to get God, because you already got God. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and, and listen to those last few words. Speed, it's coming. Speed, it's coming. You ever think about that for a minute? Somehow, in, in a mysterious way, according to Peter, God allows us to partner in the coming as we speed the day. What's that look like? Well, when we live like Jesus, when we partner with him in acts of servanthood and acts of love, in your bulletin, there's an insert on Family Resource Day. And this year, we're going to be given the opportunity once again to be Jesus to the under-resourced. And uh, starting next week, we're going to be collecting uh, backpacks for children. And so Sarah and I, we need, and, and, and uh, our church, we've got a goal this year of 400, well, 398, okay? 398. And so let's go, let's Let's get going and speed the day. Speed the day when we partner with, with Jesus in acts of servanthood and acts of love. Uh, find out which day you can serve and put your name and your email, your phone, and uh, just put this at the Welcome Center, all right? And we'll be in contact with you about the... You, this is... This, Lisa Shelter put this together and, and uh, it, it just describes everything. So... You shouldn't have any questions after this, but uh, if you do, write them down and we'll get to you. But speed the day when you help the poor. Speed the day when you open up your home. Speed the day when you love somebody. Speed the day by sharing your resources. Speed the day by caring for the lonely. And speed the day by spreading the gospel. That's why we exist as a church. I wish I, I, wish I knew who that minister was who got rid of all of this stuff and just left. I wish because I'd bring him right here. And I'd introduce him to you. And, and I'd, I'd want him to see God's grace in your life so that he could fall in love with the church community again and fall in love with Jesus. And That's our mission. We are a part of something bigger than ourselves, speeding the day, speeding the day. So let's do that, okay? Let's be a church 
that lives in such a way that we speed the day. And we will find when the day comes, it will be worth it. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us this blessed hope. Thank you that our security has been established by your coming and by doing for us what we just cannot do ourselves. And thank you that our names have been written in the book of life, not because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy and grace, which you just lavished and poured out upon us. Thank you. And I pray that we would not ever fall into the trap of pinning our, our hopes on stuff too, that's too small or, or fixing our ultimate hope on what kind of job or relationship or what kind of house or how much money or health or anything like that help us God fix our ultimate hope on the only thing that's worth hoping for and that's Jesus thank you in Jesus name